Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc., Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. How are you today? I'm very well, Simon. Hope you're well too. Yes, all good. Tom, I was thinking that uh, now that we've finished Robert Black, the six episodes, and to be honest with you, I think it's taken its toll going back there, for, for me anyway, having to go back and, and relive some of that and think about the fallen colleagues over the years, people that we've lost and missed since then, and other crimes that we're going to cover here over the coming months and years. So I was thinking that maybe we should do a wee antidote to that. And one that struck me immediately was what we're going to cover today is a story from my early days as a young detective. Uh, that's got an entirely different ending. But before we move on to that, I thought maybe we should touch base about missing persons in general, because the figures about missing persons nationally and globally uh, all stack up that we've got a fantastic rate of recovery of missing persons uh, or return safely. And we've got nice methods, good proper procedures in place for dealing with that. Do you want to just recap on that to take us away from the horrors of black? who's very much the exception uh, to the rule. Because as we know, the vast majority, 99.99999% of missing persons, turn up safe and well. That's right, Simon. And of course, missing persons are... Uh, there's dozens of missing persons reported every day. And as you say, the vast majority turn up within 12 hours, a few hours. And in a sense, that's the problem. In that, when do you know when to press the panic button? When do you know when to actually start making active inquiries. And there's an old wisdom which says that you should wait 24 hours, particularly for a, a young adult. You should wait 24 hours. A young adult was missing at the weekend. They've probably gone to a party, found a billet for the night. They'll turn up safely the next day. So there's no point in going out, knocking doors and stuff like that until a passage of time. And of course, the stats would say you're right about that to make that decision. But if on the very, very few occasions when some harm has befallen that person, then you're way behind the game. And so it's very important to do a proper threat assessment, really, about misfairs. And we're much, much better at that now than we used to be. Back in my early days, I hate to think how many vulnerable missing persons were missed. As I rose through the ranks, I took a special interest in missing persons. And I also asked, I always asked for, Let's look at the missing persons. When I did a, a round of the divisional stations, let's look what you've got. And they would bring out these old files. Here's the 12 long-standing missing persons we've got. And I'd look at them, and uh, young women, uh, and there'd be a note saying, may have gone off to London with her boyfriend. Uh, he used to say, where's this information come from? Oh, somebody said you should have a boyfriend in London, and, and there was nothing to pin that to at all. And, of course, as we went through the investigations of Robert Black, which was spoken about, and Angus Sinclair, particularly Angus Sinclair, the world's end killer, uh, we came across missing persons, young women missing, whose bodies were found in skeletal form sometimes, months and sometimes years after, and very strong suspicion that he could have had something to do with that, because that was his modus operandi. But, of course, since nothing was done at the time, We'd missed the opportunity. Because so many of them return safely in the first 12 hours, that's the danger, in a way, that you turn a blind eye or ignore or don't respond quickly enough to the ones that are at risk. That's interesting, Tom, because the story we're going to tell today 
but I'm going to tell from a book about the missing person, uh, the missing baby, who was actually stolen. It was actually a case of plagium. Uh, but that story is really tainted by that, that it wasn't taken 100% seriously by everyone immediately because it's so commonplace in the police for someone to come. In the old days, they would come into the police station to report it. We can't do that anymore, unfortunately. But it was so commonplace, missing persons, that it was a kind of blasé approach across the board. The other wee part of it that I wanted you just to reiterate for is, is a misunderstanding sometimes with people when they do report someone who's over 16 in Scotland who's missing, and the police do trace them. They think that it's their job to bring them home or to tell them where they are and who they're with uh, so that they can go and get them back and deal with it. And they're very often disappointed because that's not our job at all. No, that's right. And in, and in fact, we have no legal power to do that. On numerous occasions, a young person would be reported missing, uh, a runaway, and they'd be overage, and we would track them down and would assess them to be safe and, and capable, have capacity to look after themselves, and we'd have to go back to the families and say, your daughter or your son is fit and well, we've traced them, we've spoken to them, and they're all right. And then they would say, where are they? And we'd say, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. And sometimes that was very awkward. And you did feel for the parents because you thought you could be in that situation before. But an adult person with capacity has the right to disappear. You have the right to disappear, provided you've not done anything illegal in the process. Are you talking to me specifically here, Tom, or is this a general comment? (laughs) (laughs) Simon, if the cap (laughs) wear it. (laughs) Take us through that initial process then. A report of a missing person, an address where they live with their parents. Let's say it's a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, and uh, the police attend at that locus. What's the procedure for the cops at the locus then? What are they looking for? The the, the first procedure, um, if, if you've got a child, Younger than 12, possibly. But if you've got a young child missing, the first thing you should do is search the house and then search the house again and then search the house again. Because the number of infants I've known who have been reported missing, who have actually been found concealed and hidden, not by anybody else, they've concealed themselves and hidden in some cubbyhole in their own house. Is, is absolutely incredible. And what I used to do was I used to say, if somebody's missing, okay, send a search team down, and if they prove negative, I'd get a completely different search team to go and do it the second time, and then hopefully get somebody completely different to do it the third time. And I yeah. can't tell you, on several occasions, the child's been found on the third occasion, an elderly man who's suffering from dementia went missing from his house in the winter, walked out of his house. And there was all sorts of searches done, whatnot, and search dogs, miles around, and search the coastline, search the areas of water, etc., etc. And the next spring, they found his body in his garden. Actually, in his garden. He thought, how is that possible? But actually, when you see, when you see how small, how ground can overtake and how easily a body can get hidden is actually understandable. I dealt with a man who walked out of a, it was actually a a mental hospital in the Edinburgh area in the the middle of the winter and was seen walking to, wandering towards woods which were nearby in the grounds of the hospital. And of course it was a cold night and we feared for the worst so we searched it with dogs and we did everything. We cut down branches and all the rest of it, fingertip searches, everything, and blew me down the next year. Right enough, uh, his skeletal remains were found ah, about 150 yards from where he was last seen. And it, it really is, it sounds very easy to do these kind of searches, but it's extremely difficult to do. When I was a detective down in Argyle, we had the Argyle and Butte Hospital or Kilpet that, that mm. would serve uh, the whole area, the whole of Argyle, I think, and we had problems like that regularly, regu- very regularly. And, of course, it's that first 24 hours. Unfortunately, the Argyle and Butte Hospital is, is surrounded by the Crinning Canal on three sides and by the sea on the other side, Loch Gilt. You can imagine very often where these people would turn up. I remember going there 
as a young detective again, I'd latched onto a uniform cop, John Malcolm, his name was, who was a friend of mine. And I'd latched onto him for a reason, because I was in plain clothes and I had visions of going to Argyll and Butte Hospital and nobody believing who I was. <laughs> and I, might get, I might get thrown in the bed. But John and I were standing at the door of, of one of the wards. We saw this guy walking up the hill towards us. And John said, oh, oh, this looks like a patient coming up the hill. So we would stop laughing and joking or whatever we were doing. And this guy came up the hill. And sure enough, he looked as though he was maybe just out for a wee wander. And uh, he came up, and as he came up the stairs, he said, good morning, lads, how are you? And he had a badge on that said he was chief of staff or something like that. He was one of the one of the head guys in the hospital, and we thought he was a patient coming up the hill. <laughs> so that proves that I could easily have been thrown in a bed with a needle up my bum, and that would be the last year of the scene of the DC from Campbellton. Well, I know, and who knows what agonies might have been spared the general population if that had happened. <laughs> Twist of fate. <laughs> And they very often ended up in the water. And, of course, there's a whole uh, science behind bodies in the water when they come up and whatnot. So, yeah, so right. it was quite predictable what was going to happen up there. But you're absolutely right. That first 24 hours, latterly we had the helicopter to help us as well, which can trace any heat in the fields and whatnot round about. But generally that was a big problem. Was that On one occasion we had an old man who was uh, in Glasgow as well. We had that too. What I found remarkable was that up until the 1990s, we had no national register of missing persons. They were all local. The best national register for misspers in this country was held by the Salvation Army. Now, that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So how many missing persons were, uh, were murder victims? We will never know. An interesting fact is that throughout the UK, at any given time, there are about 150 unidentified bodies lying in mortuaries all over the place, unidentified bodies lying in mortuaries. And on the one hand, you've got uh, missing persons that there's no trace of. And on the other hand, you've got found human remains, which we cannot identify or put a name to. And I, I always thought that was remarkable. And, and it's different now, and it's changed now. But up until quite recently, the police service did not join these dots. What's quite recently, Tom? I think it's the 1990s. I... I noticed when I went out to America to work in the late 80s, they had quite a good system there. They had a, a system whereby they'd done a deal with milk manufacturers, believe it or not. And if you bought a carton of milk in America, there was invariably a picture on the back of a person, usually a missing young woman or a missing young man, with a little story behind it saying missing from whatever. I remember speaking to, he was a highway patrolman. Some, I think he was away out in Arizona or something. And every springtime, they would recover dozens of human remains, dozens of bodies lying in the ditches and dumped beside the road. They at least were trying, and now you imagine in the United States of America, massive place, trying to connect the two together of missing persons, reported missing persons, found remains would be difficult. But if you look at the very, very famous, notorious Green River case, which I think ended up with something like 30 victims to this one individual. Most of them were missing persons. Most of them were, were hitchhikers and people who he picked up. And most of them were never reported as missing. They had just disappeared off the face of the earth. Fred and Rosemary West's victims, yes. many of them were hitchhikers, were people who had left to seek their fortune elsewhere and who simply disappeared. And the families either didn't know or didn't care or they had no families at all, and there was no one to look out for them. So there's a tremendous number of solitary people going about, oh, it'd be in the, the 1980s, this young woman who came into the police station to report that she, she was missing, she was suffering from a loss of memory, she didn't know who she was, and she had no idea on her, etc., etc., and she actually presented it this. And after a long investigation, and she purported to be 15 years of age or 16 years of age. After a long investigation, we found out she was a serial hoaxer. She was in her late 20s, and she did this. She'd be, she travelled around the country, and she'd done it on several occasions, got into police stations, claiming that she was, had amnesia, just as a kind of an attention-seeking exercise. And she was very good, and she was very plausible. 
And it actually took some time and a lot of investigation to actually find out who she actually was. Something that strikes me there, Tom, along the same lines as I had an inquiry a lifetime ago, like they all were, with it was an illegal immigrant when I eventually caught him. It was a fraud. It was quite a big fraud, actually. And uh, it was a good story how I caught him with uh, a, a photo fit that I got a friend to do, an artist friend to do, made from a photocopy of his driving license. So you can imagine how small your photograph is on your driving license. And this guy that I knew made a photo fit from that. And within the Asian community in Glasgow, I managed to find out who he was. And he was here illegally. And what struck me was that his life was a life of terror. Mm. And when I eventually found him on the street and approached him, he was in the horrors because he was ready. He would have run in a second if we'd allowed him to. Because his life was worth nothing. Because he was here illegally. He had no documentation, no identification. He could never sign on or be any part, a legitimate part of our society. And therefore, his employer, who paid him a pittance for working 12, 14 hours a day in a kitchen, could do with them as they pleased. If they put him in the clyde with the concrete wellies on, nobody would ever notice he was missing. Nobody would ever be able to report him. The police, would, the authorities would never have been aware of his existence at all. So I wonder how many people live in our country under that kind of duress. There's more than we could ever guess. There was a recent case uh, through in your neck of the woods, I'm talking about the last year or so, where some people were prosecuted for, for basically for slavery, for keeping two or three individuals just exactly in the category you've talked about and keeping them more or less as slaves working in some sort of market garden, as I recall. The trafficking of people for the sex industry, I think, is an awful lot wider than we know. We sometimes see the tip of the iceberg, but it's only ever the yeah. tip. Those subjects are subjects that we're going to return to. I know for a fact that they are, and we'll leave them for another day because we've opened up an, another tin of worms there about the sex industry and slave trade and people trafficking, which ties in with a lot of other topics and themes. But going back to the missing persons, Let's look at that change then, because you said, I remember this, the, the missing persons file, which was a physical file that was held at every office and sat along with other files up in the small boats file and different yeah. files that were kept yeah. at every office, dependent on local issues and local problems. The likes of Campbelltown was a rural community, so there was the sheep dipping file and there was the stolen cars file. All these things were manually kept at that time. And missing persons was exactly the same. So how did that work nationally then? How did we keep tabs and how has it changed? Did you know? We didn't keep tabs internationally. It was done on a force-by-force basis. And unless uh, Lothian and Borders Police decided to broadcast and publicise in the Police Gazette or in other means the description of someone, unless we thought that perhaps this missing person was through in your neck of the woods, then we generally wouldn't broadcast it. Some people, it's the old story, some people went to extraordinary lengths to do a good job, and they really did, as undoubtedly you did in this story that we're about to hear. But some of us didn't, and there were no checks and balances to make sure that these missing persons were treated properly. When I became a detective super, when I used to visit the divisions, I always asked to see the missing person file. We would have a meeting and we'd talk about it and say, this person's been missing three years. and sometimes. We had one or two cases where we had a, a missing person missing for three years and I said to folk, look, let's get back in touch with the family in case they've heard anything. So they got back in touch with the family and said, oh, yeah, he came home. He came home six months ago. We had one long-term missing person who went out to the World Cup in 1986. This individual who actually was wanted on a warrant, that's why we were interested in him. He went, he, he went missing, disappeared off the face of the earth, went away to the World Cup and never came back. Uh, and in fact, uh, eventually he was traced and he was arrested somewhere else in Europe and they, they took his fingerprints and, and checked him out. But he had just, she just disappeared off the <laughs> I'm sure there's Scotsmen all, every venue, Barcelona, Lisbon... <laughs> Every World Cup, we've not been at one for a long time, but uh, you get the idea. Yeah. Argentina, I know there was people never came back. God, yeah. They can go for a weekend to, to Malaga and not come back, Tom. 
<laughs> we know that through walking football. <laughs> Golf trips, anything at all. Scotsmen yeah. are renowned for the uh, renowned travellers, shall we say. Explorer. Explorers. Yes. Explorers, <laughs> that's right. The thing is though that it leaves the most awful pall of uncertainty over the mm. families of people who are missing. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't know whether they're dead or alive and, and for oh for the next thirty or forty years they're sitting waiting and expecting to come back to the door. Also the police investigation is to some extent unsatisfactory as well because it's not treated like a murder. It's all treated, I use the word again, haphazardly. At least that certainly was the case. And there's a national register now that the whole country yes. can feed yes. into and can extract information from. Descriptions right. and photographs and all the rest of it. It's all, there's a, P, there's a PNC, it's all on the police national computer. Um, so, yeah, that's right. The one wee thing that crossed my mind there was down in Argyll was fishing boats. Quite often, if a fishing boat found a body in the water, pulled one up in its nets, Tom. If it brought that body home to the harbour, then it, the boat was tied up for a few days whilst inquiries were made, etc., etc. And so very often I know that nets were cut or bodies were just allowed to go back to sea rather than cost so much money to not be at sea for a couple of days. It wasn't just that. The catch was condemned. We had the same thing on the East Coast here where they would let the body go because the whole catch would be condemned and it would, there would not only be the... the the amount of time they were tied up, but also was a huge loss of revenue. Uh, one crosses my mind where I was sent down to a tanker, some kind of uh, merchant ship that was berthed in Campbelltown, berthed just outside Campbelltown. And it was from Interpol, and it was to go and take fingerprints from the crew of this ship for identification purposes because a body had been found. I can't remember the exact details now, Tom. Mm -hmm. Possibly the channel possibly washed up off the channel somewhere, and through the shipping lanes they could tell which ships had passed through right. and when, and with all the information and data that they had, this was one ship that it might have been the body had come from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my simple job was to go and take fingerprints and get the details of all the crew. There only are half a dozen crew on these things mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. Massive boats, but uh, very uh, minimal crew. And uh, so I went down to do that. And the only person on the ship that I could converse with without an interpreter was the skipper, who happened to speak English. I think he was French, but uh, a nice man. And he laughed at me when I told him what my job was, to come down and get fingerprints from the crew. And he laughed because, it, and he explained this to me. He said that they, when they go into a port and they need crew, there are maybe two or three hundred men trying to become crew members, queuing up in Delhi or, or wherever it happens to be in the world. To be get on the boat and be a crew member is a life-changing event yeah. Uh, yeah. for everyone involved and yeah. get away, etc. So there are hundreds waiting. And if they pick one or two, then whatever documentation they've got on them, they accept at face value. But it could be from anyone among the two or three hundred that are waiting on the dock. So the chances of any documentation matching the crew member are almost nil in the first place. The chances of them giving me any information are even less, and the chances of the fingerprint matching anything that's held on a merchant database is virtually nil as well. But I took them anyway. I took their fingerprints and, uh, and off we went. <laughs> one thing I was involved in there, once they talking about a fish, fishing boat and missing persons, there was a... A boat, it was a, I'll always remember her name, she was called the Ross Kestrel, and she was East Coast Fisheries, a crew of about six people, and they picked up a torpedo in their net, yeah. and they landed it on the deck of the boat as they were coming in. It's safe to say that a refreshment or two had been taken by the crew, and two of them decided that the warhead of the torpedo was made of bronze and was therefore valuable. Oh. And if they removed it with a hammer and chisel, they could sell it for scrap. <laughs> well, the resultant explosion, uh, and I, I saw the boat, and it was as if a giant hand had scooped out the whole of the front of the boat, and only the bridge uh, rem <laughs> remained intact at the back. You know these old fishing boats that were, had a tiny wee wheelhouse at the back? Honestly, it was as if a giant hand had been scooped out, but the hull was intact. The explosion had all gone upwards. We searched and we searched, and we found a tiny fragment 
of bone of the elbow of one of these guys. That was it. That was all we ever found. And so there's two missing people and the Roskestro and trying to steal scrap from a torpedo. I've got a whole raft of, I think it's Flodic, the devices thrown down can tire over the years, not a missing person, so, so we'll come back to that again, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, that's been very interesting, especially that we now have a national database. And I suppose that to finish on that, the whole problem of missing persons, found bodies that we can't identify, all of that is down to communication. It's down to people reporting missing persons. It's down to people reporting when they're found. It's down to people helping with these inquiries. Because it got to the stage in the police that it was routine to see a list and pictures and whatnot. How much cognizance was ever given to it is, is hard to say. We've touched on this before in, in this whole series, Simon. It's down to systems. It's down yes. to having good systems. And that's yep. what we lacked before. Um, we may have had good investigators, but we, we had hopelessly inadequate systems. And to be honest, it wasn't taken seriously enough across the board. Yeah. Uh, if somebody decided it wasn't a suspicious missing person, that there were not suspicious circumstances, then it could lie on files for long enough and sometimes never be dealt with properly. I'm very happy to say that the systems now do not allow for that. And I think that's good because the one you referred to earlier, the story we're talking about today, which I wrote about, was nothing to do with the, the systems, really. It was the fact that it was a baby, six months old, and her mum had been in the post office. The baby had been in her pram outside the post office in Rossi on the Isle of Butte off the west coast of Scotland. I think around Easter time, actually, it was. And when she came out of the post office, having done her business, the baby was gone. Baby and pram were gone. Mm -hmm. So. Initially, I would say for the first 10, 20 minutes, it was dealt with quite routinely until I overheard a radio message. And I think this is part of the Robert Black story as well. I had a one-year-old son at the time, Simon Jr., who's just turned 40. And if I could go back in time, I would maybe have given her to the person involved here, but that's a different, given him to the person involved here, but that's a different story altogether. But maybe in my head, the publicity surrounding Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, etc., was in everybody's brains at that time. This was 1984. Mm -hmm. uh, the early part of 1984. So all of those outside influences feed into your reaction to something like that. Yeah. But my reaction was instant to close the island down, to start inquiries at the post office and carry out a physical search at the post office and whatnot. And as I said, it was a case of plagium. But we're going, to, we're going to hear more about that now. I'm going to read the story, Tom. Not read it verbatim, but I'm going to go over it. And then we're going to speak to one of the main players involved. That's interesting, Simon. Can I just, just give you a little historical footnote? Sure. To tell you that actually the theft of children was very common. Because before the Victorian age, children were seen as small economic units. You could put mm. them to work. And so children were actually worth something to steal. It's only since Victorian times and in the very middle and upper class societies that we've seen children as to be cosseted and protected until adulthood. In many other rural societies, children were put to work literally straight away. And stealing a child was, it was, like, it was like stealing a horse. There was actually some economic value in stealing children. So it's, it's interesting how, how that changes. Hence the, the crime of palladium. That's possibly all true through in the East Coast, but we're much more civilised through here. So this was a very unusual uh, case <laughs> in the West of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me tell you the story. Okay, this is my story. When I was a young detective in Rossi on the Isle of Butte, I was the detective in the Isle of Butte. And this happened one day, and it's a contrast to the Black series that we've just made, the six-parter about Robert Black and his horrific crimes and abduction murder of children. And this is a kind of counterbalance to that, my wee story that's in my book, The Ten Percent. And I thought it was quite interesting to do after Black. So I'll just read the story. And in my book, I put on the front page the truth, the whole truth, and something like the truth. And I now know that this book proves that point. It should have been the truth, the whole truth, and nothing like the truth. 
but we'll come to that later. Here's the story. It's called Blind Panic. I know myself well enough to say without any fear of contradiction that I don't tend to get in a panic. I'm not sure why that is or if it's just that we're all made different, but invariably when the button is pressed, I step up. I become calmer and more focused, and truth be told, I absolutely thrive on that buzz of adrenaline. Perhaps it's a throwback to my upbringing where chaos and totally random drunken behaviour was the norm and you quickly learn to keep your head down. But it's certainly not a conscious thing. I don't think, don't panic, any more than a total flapper would say, let's start screaming and running about silly. And that should help a lot. It's just part of who I am. I like a deadline to focus my mind. But on this day in particular, I got as close to panic as is possible. Without completely tipping over the edge, thankfully. It was just a normal day. I was on duty. Quite a nice day, as I recall. And I've written here late summer, but we'll come back to that. The call came in, I think, about two o'clock, and a woman reported that someone had stolen her seven-month-old baby girl and her pram from outside the post office. Now, unfortunately, I didn't hear the call. Very rarely would a call go out to CID. It would go to a uniform car in the first instance, and it might or might not be overheard by the CID. But as it transpired, a few precious minutes were wasted and nobody really grasped the severity of the situation right away. The uniforms went to the locust, met with the mother and started taking a statement, etc. A description, details of the baby, the pram, her clothing, all of that stuff. And it was the radio messages in relation to the description that I heard on my car radio. I immediately intervened and suggested to the sergeant on duty that an immediate search be commenced starting from the locust. And the reply that I got was that she's definitely not at the locus she's made off with the baby. That kind of thing can put you into a panic because the place to start is at the locus uh, and a physical search is the thing to do immediately. But in any event, the one thing that could push me into a panic, I told them to keep everyone in the post office and search the immediate area, the common closes round about and other businesses, primarily for the pram. Uh, and I also called for more officers to be called on duty ASAP. But it seemed that I was the only one who immediately either grasped the severity of this and gravity because my son, maybe because my son was one year old at the time, uh, Simon Jr. Who knows, but somehow I got it and nobody else seemed to be treating it with the urgency that I know that it required. Because those immediate minutes are very important, especially later when it comes to to gather on evidence. Pram must have got there within five minutes and before I got there the pram had been found out in the back court behind the post office. The policewoman who had found it was so chuffed you'd have thought she'd found a baby. I'd arranged for a car with one cop to head down to the Robodach ferry. Robodach to Colin Drive is the alternative route off of the Isle of Butte from the Calmac ferry at Rossi itself. Uh, it's a 20 minute drive away and I got someone to phone the ferryman and make sure it didn't sail before the police officer got there. His instructions were simply to physically search any vehicle trying to leave the island on the ferry. I spoke en masse to the five or so customers and two staff members in the post office, and we eventually gleaned that it had been most likely been a woman who was seen hanging about outside round about the time the baby vanished. She was described as blonde, about 60 to 65 years of age, and well-dressed. And knowing the times of the main Calmac berries off the island, we now had an hour or so to take stock and seal the island down. I'm not sure why, as there was a very senior and competent uniform sergeant on duty, but I seemed to have inherited control of this thing and it just evolved from there. I just seemed to know what to do and nobody interfered or questioned me. I think, looking back on it now, this was 1984. And looking back on it, having just done the black uh, serial killer, Robert Black, that was obviously in all of our minds at that time, <laughs> certainly in mine, and having a young son, because Caroline Hogg, Susan Maxwell, the boys in Lothians did a fantastic job of creating a profile of that, that I think everybody in the country was aware of the problems and what had happened to Susan Maxwell in the borders and Caroline Hogg in Portobello. Uh, so I'm thinking that I've had that in my mind 
and it's not going to happen on my patch if I can help it. We had it on Radio Clyde within 30 minutes. We had the island shut down quicker than that. And at a quarter to four, I had everyone converging on the pier to search every vehicle and check every foot passenger going on the ferry. Crucially, I had also had Calmac link me through to the captain of the ferry, and he was fully aware of what we were doing. And I asked him to make all of his crew aware, which I know he did. The baby had now been gone almost an hour, and I had whatever cops were available walking away from the locust, speaking to everyone they met, every publican, every shopkeeper they passed. My thinking was that we couldn't get the story out far and fast enough, and we needed to find someone who had seen something. I knew there was a real urgency, and by now the others were starting to catch on. This could end very badly for everyone, especially the baby. I was also looking for expert help, and I had called Pitt Street Police Headquarters. In fact, I'd called the DCI at Barton to give him his place, and he had taken it from there. And he had sourced a specialist down in the Met, as far as I remember. And she called me from London about an hour in. And among all the things she told me was the very sobering fact that this woman wasn't well. The chances were that she wouldn't have any food or a change of clothes for the baby. She had acted on a growing impulse, and this was a well-known phenomenon. The sad fact was that when the baby needed a feed or a change of nappy, she would start crying, obviously, and the woman would panic, get agitated, and at the best, abandon the child. I didn't even want to consider the other options, to be honest. We discovered that she'd walked north from the locust towards the police station. Past the sheriff court, we had a better description of her now. Sharp features, pale complexion, shortish blonde hair, slim build, wearing a dress of some kind, possibly blue, carrying the baby wrapped in a blanket, a pink blanket, missing from the pram. I immediately passed this on for distribution as far as possible, and we all headed to the pier to search cars as the ferry was in. This was the big advantage of policing an island. Everyone had to travel on one of two ferries to get to and from Rossi, and the Calmac ferry was by far the main route, coming from Weems Bay near Gourop. When the ship came in, the captain stepped off before it had even been tied up and came straight over to me. He knew me from a variety of inquiries, as you can imagine, on the ferries. He told me, I might have something for you, Simon, someone you need to speak to. And then he took me on board, uh, and a girl in Calmac uniform was waiting in the lounge. Meanwhile, the troops were searching every car, waiting to get on board. I'm not sure of the legality of those searches now, but as I would do many times throughout my career, I made a judgement call. If everyone voluntarily allowed us to search the car, then there was no problem. There was no need for any legality issues. And if they didn't, they weren't moving off that pier and would immediately become a suspect. This is clear 10% thinking in my head. But it was then. The girl was in her early 20s and a bit shy. This is the girl on the ferry. But with encouragement from me and the captain, we eventually gleaned that she'd seen a woman who fitted the description we were looking for and had come across on the lunchtime boat to Rossi. At first, the girl thought the woman was carrying a baby in her arms. She'd been in the lounge with a baby held close to her chest and she'd been looking at the baby and fussing when the girl passed her. But when the girl looked more closely, intending to comment on the child, she realised that it was only a doll that the woman was holding. She had backed off immediately. The best piece of information to come from this was that the woman was a regular on the ferry. The Calmac girl thought she must have been resident on the island, and so did I. And then I got lucky, as you do when you do the legwork. Harry Bosch will tell you that. We had planned to speak to the taxi drivers who were always on and around the pier, especially when a ferry was arriving, but we hadn't had time to do that yet. And I got one of the lads to stop all the vehicles getting off the pier right away and race down the gangplank to speak to them. At first they weren't too pleased at me interfering in their trade, as if I cared, but they soon came round when they realised why. None of them had picked up the woman with the child doll, but... Alec, who had given a lift home not so long before, from the roadside where he'd crashed his bicycle, pished as a fart, I might add, remembered seeing her walking off the pier as he drove off with a hire. We were closing in. I'm surprised Alec remembered me getting him home as he was so drunk that night. 
We now had a direction of travel at least up the hill past the Rossi Castle towards the police station. We met back at the office to gather information and collate the information and plan our next moves. And I remember fielding calls from gaffers wanting to set up an instant room, send manpower over the next day. This horrified me. I had no intention of resting until we had the baby saved. There was a policewoman in tears due to the stress of the whole situation, but I remember being totally calm. And when I spoke with the parent of the baby, the mother of the baby afterwards, she said that my determination and confidence had kept her sane for those five or six hours. I'm not exactly sure when, but I had a brainwave. I was sitting with the chief inspector, actually bringing him up to date, because by this time it had been on national news bulletins and he was getting grief from headquarters in Pitt Street. And it suddenly dawned on me. I sat down for five minutes and together we noted all the corner shops and newsagents in this part of Rossi where we knew she had been walking toward. And starting with the ones closest to the police office, uh, we visited them right away. We just got the boys and girls together and off we went. And bingo. Within five or ten minutes we had a convenience store owner who had served this woman not that long ago. He was sure it was her from a description. He knew her from regular visits, uh, although she wasn't exactly a regular. He was sure she lived in the block where his store was situated, because she sometimes came in her slippers, or very casual. So off we went. I was buzzing now, also shit scared. It had been over three hours. In fact, I'm saying in my book that it was over three hours. I now know for a fact that it was much longer than that. But we'll come back to that. Anything could have happened. We started banging on doors at the big tenement blocks and within 15 or 20 minutes we got the break we needed. We'd pressed an intercom for a close entry system, ground floor, and when the guy answered and I said CID, could he open the door? His first comment was, is it that woman with the baby thing? He then said, no bother, I think she might be in 22, which is a flat number up the coast. When we chapped the door, I was with a young cop, a Scott and a policewoman and sure enough, the, the woman we, we now felt we knew so well answered the door. I didn't caution her, I just told her we were looking for a baby and walked in past her. To be fair, she didn't protest in the slightest and was very calm. Perhaps she'd had enough of the baby luck, to be honest. The baby was on the settee, still wrapped in a pink blanket, and thankfully, no problems breathing and sleeping. I know he would deny it now, but uh, Scott Maxwell had tears in his face. And I had when I wrote this, because it brought it all back to me. But what a relief. Scott and the policewoman took the baby away downstairs, and and obviously we dealt with the woman thereafter. I could see the doll lying on the bed as well, discarded when she'd acquired the real thing. And after a few minutes she got her coat on, and we headed to the office where she was charged and the doctor was called, etc. And I know that she appeared in court the next day and eventually went and got some treatment in hospital, etc. But that's not really what the story is about anyway. For days afterwards, I was busy taking and collating statements, searching the house, other properties she had in Paisley, and generally tidying things up. You've heard us say it before on the podcast that after an arrest is when a lot of the work actually begins. So when I got home that night, uh, we'd recovered the baby, I was emotionally drained, but I, I remember phoning the office to make sure someone had stood down Danny up at Ravodach, who was guarding the ferry terminal, and he had been relieved and sent back home for his dinner. It had been all over the news, of course, and when I related the bones of the story and the happy ending to my wife Margaret at the time, she in turn told me a story that sent a real shiver up my spine. She'd been out around lunchtime with my almost one-year-old Simon Jr. in his pram. She'd gone into the Bank of Scotland uh, on the front on Victoria Street in Rossi, and, and she'd left the pram outside the bank at the revolving doors. She'd only been inside a few minutes, and when she came out, a woman was holding Simon in his arms, staring at Margaret grabbed Simon and asked her what she thought she was doing, and the woman said, What a lovely wee girl. You must be so happy. Simon was apparently dressed from head to toe in blue and should never have been mistaken for a wee girl. <laughs> he certainly wouldn't be now. It was without doubt the same woman, maybe 30 minutes or so before uh, she snatched the wee girl from outside the post office. My wife only proved how ineffective my publicity efforts had been at spreading the word. 
She had been totally unaware of any drama until I walked in the door, and she was equally unimpressed by my mourning. What a day she'd had! The next day I spoke to a fiscal prior to taking my report over, and she confirmed that the charge would be one of plagium, the Scottish crime of theft of a child under the age of puberty, not a regular occurrence in our courts. She'd never had such a case, Caroline McNaughton, and she didn't recall hearing of one, so she was quite excited. I was less so, just being totally relieved that the baby had survived her ordeal. And at the end of that story in the 10%, the sentence I, I finish with is, I wonder where that wee girl is now. That's one of the reasons that I'm reciting this story, because I really did wonder where that wee girl was now. And earlier this year, because we're out of lockdown and all that stuff seems a distant memory, I started making some inquiries, as you would expect, and uh, went over to Rossi, uh, enlisted the help of social media and a few uh, old friends over there, and we traced that wee girl. Uh, her name, the, the baby, is Carly Mackay. And I've been over and met her, I got a couple of pictures with her, and she was the wee baby that we recovered that day, and she's always been told Detective McLean, <laughs> which is what she called me. Uh, when I met her and when I spoke to her on the phone it's only now I've got her to stop calling me Detective McLean and she's an absolute cracker but I'm not going to uh, spoil her thunder in any way because uh, we're going to have her as a guest I've done a wee interview with her that we've recorded and I'm hoping that over the next day or two we'll be able to get her on, on here somehow for a chat so uh, we're going to meet that baby from almost 40 years. It would be 40 years in April that happened. And it was in the local paper and stuff. We've got cuttings of that. But uh, Carly actually is just about to turn 40. So this is uh, part of her 40th celebration. That she's only here thanks to me. And I, I won't tell you anymore because it's her story. And uh, we'll have a laugh with her because she's great fun. Uh, and finish this wee story off. But that's much better than in the Robert Black series where the poor girls, the uh, victims of Black, speak soon. Carly, welcome to Crime Time Inc. That's uh, our podcast, our true crime podcast. And uh, I'm trying to remember now, see when you get to my age, it gets tricky. I'm trying to remember why we're chatting. Are you a master criminal or something that I'm interviewing you here? Yes. <laughs> right, well, definitely not. I need to caution you then. You're not obliged to say anything. Carly, Carly Mackay, uh, you live in Rossi yes. on the Isle of Butte. And the last time I met you was 40 years ago. Yes. Over 40 years ago, actually, I think it was no less than 40. That's okay. It's only 39 years. It's not as bad. Yes. Do you remember? Slept through the whole day. <laughs> To put our listeners in the picture, you were actually a baby in the pram at that time. That was in... Six months old. Was it April? Yes. April 19... 1983. 84. 84. Yeah. You were born in 83. Yeah. November 1983. Uh -huh. And in 1984, I was a young detective here in the Isle of Butte, in Rossi. Uh -huh. So tell me your recollections of that day. Were you impressed by me? <laughs> Yes. Kelly, you were abducted. You were stolen from your pram, or, or with, your, with your pram. With That's pram. a debate just now, because my memory is so bad. I need to speak to your mum about that. Tell us what you know about that, because obviously you were told about it growing up. My mum has told me the story from a very young age, that she went to the post office that morning at 9.30 to post a letter with my sister, who's three years older, and was in the queue. Remembers a lady walking past the window a couple of times, didn't think anything of it. Got served after waiting in the queue, came out, and the pram had vanished. So she remembers the pram going as well the as you? The pram was gone, nowhere to be seen. And she remembers getting the pram back with you later on that day. We should we should say there's a happy ending to that. There is a happy ending. Um, she couldn't get a pram back, it was kept as evidence. Right. The police kept it, but she did get me back at 7 o'clock at night at the police station, approximately 7 o'clock at night. Okay, so that shows you how bad my memory is, mm -hmm. because it's actually in my book, in the 10%, that the pram was still at the post office, 
outside the back of the post office. And and the whole thing lasted four or five hours, something like that. Whereas in actual fact, it was near 10 hours mm -hmm. before we got you back. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's why my book says it's something like the truth, because I knew that my memory was, and there's nobody I could speak to about it because I'm, I'm not in touch with anyone that was involved. I think before we go into it a wee bit more with your childhood and stuff like that and the stories that you were told, we should say that we want to focus here on the positive side of it. Yeah. Because at True Crime, we get some horrific stuff, Callie, mm -hmm. uh, especially where children are involved, abductions and murders and all sorts of serial killer stuff. And that's not what this is about. And the person who was responsible certainly didn't fall into that category. We knew right away afterwards that she wasn't well and that this had been a one-off thing. And being an island community, the last thing we would want to do is to spoil any relationships that are now formed because you're now friends with that family and stuff like that. And that's great. Mm -hmm. And the woman got the help that she needed at the time mm -hmm. as well. So it's nothing to do with the crime aspect of it, no. which it was then as a policeman. But within 12 hours, we realised that it was a mental health issue as opposed to a criminal issue. Yeah. And that was dealt with appropriately, hopefully. But from your perspective then, when did you first get told about it when you, when you were... I was very young. Yeah? Very young, yeah. And what did your mum tell you? The whole story. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And did she name me? Yes. So you've known about me for 38 years or something, 35 yes. years? Um, this I've always mystical known figure. you as Detective McLean. Is that right? Yes. That's the first thing you called me yes. when I phoned you up. Oh, yes. it's Detective McLean. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. So I was this hero figure. Have you any posters or anything like that in, in the house? No. Growing up, most people would have Bon Jovi or something like that, or Springsteen or somebody. Did you have Detective McLean? No. <laughs> what about your friends then? Because your peers, they were all babies at the time as well. Did you tell them this story? Did it ever come out at school or anything like that? Well, when I went to school with another girl, it turned out that the lady had actually been at her pram as well outside another shop before she took me. Right, right. that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Because that day when I got home, I discovered that she had lifted my son out of his pram as well. Yeah. He was born in August, so he was about the same age as you. Yeah. He's just turned 40. He was a wee bit older than you, Simon. So she had been looking for a baby. In fact, yeah. we now know that she was on the ferry and that, that there was an incident on the ferry as well that, that let us know that she, she she was ill, was having thoughts along those lines. So you were the last one. Do you think it was a case of looking for you in particular then? Yes. <laughs> she wanted the best. <laughs> and she got there eventually. She got a princess. There must have been something appealing about you. <laughs> For the life of me, I can't imagine what it would have been. <laughs> Maybe because I was so small. Were you? Yeah, it was small. a very small baby. Right. So I'm wondering if it's because I looked more like a newborn. Right. Because I was only £3.11, I think, when I was born. Right. Yeah, that must have been something. Like, anyway, mm -hmm. that's, it was you. Mm -hmm. You were the problem. Yeah. We should say that your mum doesn't want to really talk to me just now. She's passed on her regards and yeah. all that. She's mm -hmm. got nothing but fond memories about the outcome anyway. Uh -huh. Yes. And and what we did that day. But she'd rather stay in the background yeah. just now, uh -huh. which is fine. Tell her I was asking for her. Well done. But on the day, has she told you how that day unfolded? Yes, yeah, she's remembered. Her memory will be much better than mine because it was a big, big thing on that, that day. Yeah, her memory's very clear of that day. Um, she remembers going down the pier with you in the car and searching the cars. She remembers driving about, going to derelict houses, going round houses, stopping all the prams that were navy prams. Didn't realise I'd been changed into a brown pram and my, I'd been bathed right. and changed out my outfit into a lemon outfit. Right. Which being a ginger baby and lemon didn't suit me. No. You still got it? <laughs> no. <laughs> she gave it back. <laughs> Okay, so you had been changed and washed and bathed? Yeah, she'd bathed me and changed me, right. fed me, yeah. Looked after you? Yeah. It's nice, because it was nine hours or so, nine or ten hours, mm -hmm. so that was important that you were looked after. Yeah. What about the relief for your mum when we found you? Was she there? No, she wasn't She was me. in the police station. Right. And he's got the word, when the girl I went to school with, mum heard about the baby going missing, she then went and reported that a lady had been at her pram, at her baby, at another shop. And then mum remembered, oh, she walked past the window a couple of times. Right. 
from and the then description. from the description yes. and realised, remembered who it was. So then went and reported it, but there was a mix-up with married names, maiden names, old addresses. Yes, and all the usual. The yeah. usual. So then it was, I think she got to wait back at police station while you were finding out the current address, or you went to the old address and had to find out the new address and the new yeah. name and trying to find And there out. was a shopkeeper involved. Um, I don't even remember the address, but I remember speaking to a shopkeeper who knew the lady and, mm -hmm. and said, I think this is who you're looking for. She comes in here in the slippers. So we knew she lived very close by. Mm -hmm. you know? So that was uh, how we got to the happy ending. Mm -hmm. Did you, growing up, uh, did it come up during the course of your uh, schooling and things like that? Did your pals know about it? Some of my pals knew about it because we're all the same age. Yeah. And we discussed it a few times at school now. And obviously my pals with their mums that remember it, they believed me. But as grown up, being older, late teens and that, and then if you're out and nights out and that, and what's the craziest thing you've done or your claim to yeah. fame? And I would say, oh, I was kidnapped as a baby. Then people were tending not to believe me and thinking I was making it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I got in touch with you a few months ago, mm -hmm. that must have been quite good then. It was good, and now it's cleared up that it is a true story. <laughs> but I was pretty much in shock that you remembered my case and wanted to get in touch. When I got in touch with you and you told your mum, was it almost a mythical figure, this Detective McLean? Who did I get in touch with first? Was it you on through Facebook? Through Facebook, me. I yeah. finished work, came out of work, went on my phone and seen this notification. I'd been tagged in a post on Facebook, went on to the post and read your post you put on looking for the baby yeah. that had been kidnapped in 1984 and then realised that three other people had tagged me in it and another lady had put my family tree on it. <laughs> I couldn't remember my name but put my family tree on it. So I thought, well, there's no point in hiding and I'll just put on you, yeah, I'm the baby because I knew you're definitely legit. You would knew too much information yeah. from and that my day. my name was McLean. Yeah. Well, no, you were undercover author on your post. Ah, right. Okay. So, I was like, ah, that's definitely got to burn. So I went home and said to my mum, you're not going to believe this. And I read the post to her and she sat in shock and said, that's Detective McLean. And I said, so what was his first name? And she says, Simon. So I looked up Simon McLean. Right. I'll be on. Uh, I looked up Simon McLean. The detective coming out. I did, yes. <laughs> and I found Simon McLean and I went into Simon McLean and brought up a picture and I showed my mum and she went, that's him. <laughs> And a link because you've got your undercover author as your picture yes. and that as yes. well. So we linked to and she went, it's definitely him. She said, yeah, and she says, what you going to do? Because he hasn't changed a bit, is that what she said? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Still looks <laughs> 24. <laughs> I wish that were true. That's about four stone ago. What I was going to say to you was that we've been doing some horrible stuff about serial killers and child abduction and murders. But this is the flip side of it, Carly. This is something with a nice ending. Yes. And everyone I've mentioned this to gets a smile on their face mm -hmm. because it's nice for a change for things to come uh, full circle and be happy. But I need to check that because it, did I do the right thing finding you that day? How's your life been since then? Because you'll be 40 this year. I'm 40 later in the year. Yeah. I grew up on a farm and I had a great childhood growing up on the farm till roughly about the age of 12. Is that here on Butte? Yes. Yep. Then we moved in closer to town and I'd done six years in the academy and then left the academy and started working at a factory called Flexible Technology where we made printed circuit boards. Flexible Technology? Yeah. Yep. I worked here for 20 years and then the place shut and I was made redundant in November last year. Yep. And I now work in a local hardware store and I've lived a quiet life. I've been into horses. I was a Highland dancer. Right. I had a wee girl six years ago. I'm now a dance mum. She's into her dancing. <laughs> um, so we're busy going to dance competitions now. And well, it's the season, of course. Yeah, yeah, so we're busy with that now. I gave up on horses a couple of years after I had my wee one, just through the not right. spending the time with them because I had my wee one. So now just walk the dog and look after my wee girl and go to work. Fantastic. So I did the right thing, is that what you're you saying? You did the right thing. I've not went down the life it's of life because I caused enough hassle that day many, many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. A few heart attacks that day. But it's certainly, if nothing else, on the day and the repercussions of it, 
And there's not much history of it. The local paper didn't cover it to any great extent because it was a happy ending. But it certainly serves as a reminder to everyone about keeping the kids safe because it was a different world back then, Callie. It was a very safe place back then. People didn't lock their doors. That's right. Kids played out in the street themselves, and it was a very safe place. When I grew up at the farm, it was a very safe place. Now, there's no way I would let my child, where I lived growing up, go to the beach herself like I was allowed to do. And I was the same. I live in, 12, living in Glasgow in the city in the summer. We'd no mobile phones or anything uh-huh. like that in those days either. You would disappear for 10, 12, 14 hours all day and come home for your tea. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't phone. There was no phones. We never had a phone until I was about 15 or something like that. So a different world entirely uh, that we were growing up in, which is a shame that we've lost that. But that's just the way it is. Yeah. And you'll be much. You'll have been much more vigilant the, than we had to. And parents now have got that twenty four seven. Yeah, got to be vigilant all the time on holiday, home, anywhere, anywhere, even here. Yeah. Growing up, my mum was always a bit more protective. I wouldn't say overprotective, but more protective than other mums because of what she'd been through mm. and how easily something wrong can happen. Yeah. And that's obviously rubbed off in me as well. Yeah. I know the. Grown up, I've always known the stranger danger mm-hmm. that never trust a stranger and all that. But now people need to remember how yeah. serious the because it's a split second. Uh, split second, and you're gone. The case we've just uh, done a series on Robert Black, Caroline Hogg, Susan Maxwell, etc. He was what we call a snatcher, mm-hmm. and it really was seconds mm-hmm. within seconds. One girl that he snatched, uh, the, the wheels on her bike were still spinning when the first person got there. So he'd only been seconds. He's in a van. He comes out the van and approaches the girl and subdues her immediately. In the van, gagged and bound and away. And that's 10 seconds, 15 seconds. So it's one thing we try to do on, on Crime Time Inc. It's one thing we try to do on Crime Time Inc. Is, is that awareness? And if we don't talk about these things, then they get hidden under the carpet and they're going to happen somewhere, sometime. So... Anything else you want to ask me? Because when I spoke to you, you said, I'll have a list of questions. <laughs> yeah, <McLean>. <laughs> I think you've become a wee bit of a detective. I'm looking at your file that you've made of the press cuttings and you, you're you looking at making this wee thing. You can pass on yeah. to your daughter, uh-huh. to future generations. I think that's lovely. But in the process, you've become a wee bit of a detective. I think you've yeah. off. Yeah, I didn't realise that I didn't think for a second growing up that you would remember my case. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked when you got in touch wanting to get in touch with the baby and what happened to the baby and all that and after a good life. I'm now like, all right, let's make a story about this. And here's the story so far. And yeah. let's find out. I would love to find out my case notes uh-huh. from the day, if that was at all possible. But we can only try. Yep. It's a long time ago. They might be shredded, long yes. gone, burned, yes. whatever. I don't know. So we might just have to go on my mum's version of events and what you remember in the background. Which is very little. <laughs> <laughs> it's the biggest disappointment for me because the book, The 10%, is a chapter. It's a chapter devoted to you. And now I've discovered that it's a lot of nonsense. And thank God I put in the front of the book something like the truth because <laughs> it's something like it, but it's not really. No. <laughs> my recollection is not... Uh, and that's true of everything in the police. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got different recollections, I think. That's what makes it interesting. So I'll help you all you can with your research. We'll, we'll see if we can get in touch with the Procreative Fiscal's mm-hmm. office and take it from there. There's obviously issues involved in doing that, but we can only ask the question, yeah. Carly, mm-hmm. and see where you get. My daughter last Christmas gave me a diary. It's going to be from me to my grandson, James. All right, okay. Um, and I'd, it asked me questions about where I was born, what my mum and dad were like, blah, blah, blah. And I've been writing it mm-hmm. gradually over the year. It's going to be a volume. It's going to be a big thing about my life mm-hmm. and what I remember of my mum and dad and brothers and sisters and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And what a gift that is to pass on, yeah. like you're doing mm-hmm. with your file mm-hmm. that you'll pass on to your wee one. So I've got some evidence of that day. Yes. I'd like to, just curious and like to find out more. Yeah. If it's at all possible. I've tried on Google many times over the years and got nowhere. So yeah. it can't be that fan advice it's been put online. But if there's a way somewhere it's hidden in a box in a file somewhere. Yeah. Let's see if they can find it. And it's a great story for us at at uh, Crime Time Inc. 
because it's a happy ending all round. The lady involved got some help. Yes. So it was identified that help was needed and uh, and you thrived thereafter. Uh-huh. Albeit you had posters of Detective McLean on your wall. That's a bit of a problem. Not quite. <laughs> well, if you want to buy some. <laughs> Carly, thanks very much for doing that for us. And uh, we'll keep in touch, obviously, yep. and find out how you got on with your what else you uncover yeah. now that you're a deputy. And that's that's the news I've got for you today. I can forty years after the event I can officially declare you a deputy. Thank you. Of crimetime.inc. Is that okay? Yeah. She's sworn in. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Next time on Crime Time Inc. I remembered it was called Oscar Slaters. Ah. And it was called Oscar Slaters, I think, in the eighties. And I always wondered who was Oscar Slater and what a, a strange name for a pub. Yeah. yeah, so I went back to it. That's right, there was the Oscar Slater trial and it was part of the Square Mile of Murder. Just around the turn of the century, I think. Just so, around the turn of the century, yeah. Oscar Slater was quite a famous case. Tom, you'll remember maybe from college and stuff, from our academic studies in the police. That's area. right. The trials of Oscar Slater, it's one of these landmark trials because it was... The crux of it was this leading of previous bad history. And from then on in, of course, that changed very much. But but the trial of Oscar Slater, it's been studied in depth and it still is. And if you do a criminology course, a legal course, you'll hear about the trial of Oscar Slater. Along with the famous cases, the Manual case, the Chalmers case, the Ruxton case, the trial of Oscar Slater is right up there. Yeah.